0: Hello and welcome to the Still to be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm Matthew's older brother. I'm a writer and I'll be asking the questions so you can all just sit down and put your hands down. (laughs) With me is Matthew. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about Matthew's most recent episode, which was titled (laughs) Gigafactory. How about Microfactory?
1: Rival Arrival
0: Rethinks How an EV is Built. And this episode was from December 22nd, 2020. Which means your next episode will be your last episode of the year 2020. And this episode of the podcast is in fact our last podcast episode of 2020. Yes, it is. And that is the final bark from <laughs> the dog. In the background. In 2020. <laughs> Good times all around. This video was interesting from a content perspective around the building of microfactories to build something as large as motor vehicles seems very counterintuitive. I mean, you're still talking about millions upon millions of dollars, but effectively it almost sounded like they were pop-up shops to create yeah, yeah. motor vehicles. And, and that was interesting. But to take a step backward from that, and start with how did you come across this company and how did you
1: reach out to them? I became aware of them maybe six months ago or so. They started getting a little, when they kind of came out of being in stealth mode and they were making announcements, uh, I had some people shoot me messages saying, have you seen this? And then the fully charged YouTube channel had a walkthrough in the factory where they got to actually ride in one of the UPS vans, which is really cool. And it was uh, maybe about two months ago, six weeks ago, uh, somebody from arrival reached out to me saying, would you like to talk to somebody from our company? And they said, what kind of things would you be interested in talking to them about? And I told them I was fascinated by the microfactory approach. And they said, well, the best person to talk to them would be our CEO. So they, they set up the interview for me. So I didn't actually reach out to them. It was kind of just a happy coincidence that they reached out to me because I had right. actually been thinking about stars going anyway. Yeah, so it worked out great. Where are their headquarters?
0: Because I had the impression that they were headquartered in the UK. Yes, they are. The CEO did not sound like he was British.
1: No, he's he's he, uh, from Detroit. He's worked in U.S. automotive for his entire career. So they have he, their, their headquarters in the UK, but they have offices here in the U.S.
0: So do they have a disconnected remote work office they model? Don't. Yeah, I think they oh, do. Wow, that's fascinating. It really is breaking with what are the long-term trends around large companies around motor companies, the centralization of the factory, but also the centralization of the officers and the executives involved in
1: the production. I don't, I, it's, it's a little unusual that it's such a small company because they're just starting that they're already split, that they have multiple offices already, but it's an unusual little company in the first place. So it's, it doesn't surprise me too much. They
0: talked briefly about the material that the cars are made out of. It's the color it is all the way down. And mm-hmm. they talked about, you know, a lack of need for paint. And the, the look of the material is really, to me, it, it looked very futuristic. It was yeah. a very yeah. <laughs> dynamic looking thing to say, well, it's not quite shiny like a new car typically that we're accustomed to looks, but it doesn't look dull. It has a kind of depth to the color that is, that is interesting.
1: Well, they can actually make that any way they want. They they can make it like piano black shine if they wanted to. So they can, yeah, they can adjust how it ends up looking. Because it's basically like a plastic composite. They wouldn't give <laughs> extreme details on it. It was just, it's a proprietary composite, which means yeah. there's certain aspects that they don't want to talk about. But I believe it's kind of like, it's probably got some carbon fiber in there, plastics and things like that. So it's, they can make it look like anything they want to
0: and there was a reference to the older model of stamping out the parts is not what they're doing no is it close to a 3d printing
1: uh no it, it there, there are molds that they're probably using to do this this is under mm-hmm. one of those things that they were being very vague when i was asking some detailed questions about this mm-hmm. but from what i understand it's it's more like it's molding than it is 3d printing
0: so at one point you referred to they can actually recycle the components of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool. The the material actually being chopped up. Yeah. Being chopped up. And then you said in the video molten, melted down. So perhaps it's something not quite liquid, but maybe clay-like that they're actually pressing into shapes. I was just going to say that takes me back to the old Saturday Night Live skit commercial of the Adobe. Do you remember that? no <laughs> it was back in the 80s there was a fake car commercial on snl which was the voiceover was uh, i believe it was phil hartman and the adobe was the first car to break the 500 hundred dollar point price yes. barrier i do and that's. and it was made out of clay so yes. as they drove around if they got into a fender bender, which so time-lapse of 15 minutes, somebody just reshaping the fender back into the right shape. Um, and taking the, uh, taking decorative flowers and just shoving them directly into the dashboard and getting into the seat and mushing their butt and back into the seat. So it perfectly formed fit. Um, So maybe there's something like that going on. And I I mean that seriously, maybe there's something where they're making something that isn't necessarily liquid. And then because if they're not stamping it, that means they're not putting it into sheet form and then cutting.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious to know what they're doing that's different. The thing that I don't think came through clearly in my video was individual aspects of their process are not necessarily unique. It's the combination of these things that are unique, Mm -hmm. especially in the automotive industry. Um, they even mentioned it in the interview, um, Mike brought it up where it was, they're using aspects of the aerospace industry. So they're not doing welds. They're using mechanical parts and bolts and locking mechanisms adhesives, yeah. and adhesives to glue things together, which is what they do on airplanes. Uh, they it's fast, it's efficient, it's cheap, and it's just as strong. It, like it, it, it hangs together just as well as you'd expect out of a vehicle but at less cost and there's less machinery needed to build the, the the vehicles out of. So it's, it's a great uh, combination of things. And it's Tesla is doing something similar with some of their processes. And the Cybertruck is doing the same exact thing. It's like airplanes are built as exoskeletons. It's like the wings are the fuel tank. It's not that there's fuel tanks inside the wings. The wing itself is the fuel tank. And the Cybertruck is doing something similar where they don't need uh, a skeleton inside a frame inside of the vehicle because the vehicle itself is the frame. So it's, they're doing something similar here where it's kind of like they're taking aspects of the way airplanes are made and they're applying it to auto manufacturing. So it's, for me, that was the part that was innovative. And some people commented that. Well, it's like people are using they've been using composites in aerospace for years now. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. So they're they're yeah. doing things <laughs> when building out a, a van or a bus that they've been doing in aerospace for decades. So it's like it's really cool to see them applying this in very smart, targeted ways to create something completely new and innovative.
0: I also thought there was a certain video game aspect to his description of how the cellular factory floor
1: is yeah. designed. Yeah,
0: And it seemed very much like there are so many video games which are a Clash of Clans-like model where you end up with all these little parts of your community in whatever order they happen to be built by you. You can gather them together if you want or they can be separated and on opposite ends it doesn't matter. There's no assembly lines, you know, start point, finish point. It's all just as you need it and you can break things down and move them around. I was fascinated by that aspect of saying that there are cells that they could repurpose the cell. So if one cell is the first stage, but your fleet of vehicles as you're finishing a certain order, you hit a point where you realize, well, we no longer need the first stage. Now we need the more of the final stage. You can repurpose that cell to work on the final stage so that vehicles can go in and out of the same cell again and again as it's repurposed. I thought that was fascinating very and as you said very flexible really able to on a whim almost just bend your production so that you're no longer at stage two you're now at stage three
1: and you're never having to take the entire line down to make those changes which is what was fascinating to me and I saw a bunch of comments from people about like that seems like completely inefficient and this is another this is this is completely on me because I didn't bring this up. But the scale at which they're working on is very different from a GM or a Ford or even a Tesla, where they're not trying to pump out 500,000 vehicles out of one of these factories because they're building buses, which take a lot longer to build. They're building vans, which take more time to build. So they're going to be producing far fewer vehicles. It's more of a boutique bespoke thing that they're doing. So this methodology works completely for what they're trying to do at the scale they're trying to do it if you were trying to do what ford is doing every year with how many millions of cars they produce this way i don't think you would be able to make it efficient because it would probably just buckle under its own pressure so it's like it's it isn't a one-size-fits-all solution here it's not that the Gigafactories are wrong. It's not that the Microfactories are wrong. You have to choose the approach that's right for you. Somebody brought up in the comments, I can't remember their, their username, but I love this analogy. He said, I looked up in Chicago for what the CTA, how many buses the CTA has, and it's under 2,000. Mm-hmm. So if you think about a massive city like Chicago has something like right. 1,800 buses in operation, that's, that's a massive metropolitan area with only 1,800 buses. And they're going to have a factory that can pump out 1,000 buses a year, just one. So imagine they build a factory in the Midwest, and they could service Chicago and Minneapolis. St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. Yeah. Right. They're going to have plenty of throughput. They're going to have plenty of work for years, and and they're going to be able to meet the demand. So it's not like they have to have a factory like a gigafactory to do that. They can have six of these around the country that are you know the southwest and the northeast and so it's like it's right. it's really a cool system they're setting up
0: yeah there were two comments that I think go hand in hand with what you just pointed out one of them was this clearly doesn't look like it would work for trying to build economy cars or a fleet of cars for uh purchased by the general consumer but mm-hmm. it would work beautifully for everything from the trucks and buses and luxury cars, high-end vehicles that might be yeah. a, a special type of design, where it would be you're looking at, at producing relatively a handful of them as opposed to a fleet, right. um, and especially on a per order basis. This seems like it's a it seems like a model that's set up not to produce and then have to hold inventory. It really seems like Correct. it's built around the idea of, of somebody has ordered three buses, so now we make three buses.
1: Yes, it's on demand, basically. It's not meant right. to load up a warehouse full of buses that they're going to start selling. So I'm curious, do you know what their production time
0: is if you ordered a bus?
1: This is one of those, they're playing a lot of things close to the vest. They would they not did not give me a straight answer on some of these things. Right. And I asked those kind of questions. And it was, we're planning our factory to produce about a thousand buses a year. It was like, that was the (laughs) clearest answer I got. (laughs) So you could do the math and figure out they're doing a thousand buses a year, divide that by the number of, you know, weeks, and you could probably get a ballpark idea of it will take, you know, a month to build a bus or something like that. So, but
0: yeah, that's all they were saying to me. That is still, I think, sounds pretty fast to me as somebody who's not ordering a bus. That sounds pretty fast. If (laughs) I was somebody who was ordering a bus, I might be thinking, I might think well, that's too slow, but, and you mentioned efficiency, you know, somebody saying it's not efficient. Uh, efficiency is measured in all sorts of ways. And so it's about what your goal is. Not time is not the only efficiency by which you can measure something. Um,
1: cost, cost, so I would, cost is what for me always comes through. The reason I talk about money so much when I talk about solar and renewables is because <laughs> Companies go where they're going to save the most amount of money. Companies are going to go where they can make the biggest profit. The dollar ultimately wins. And so when people say things like it's not efficient, it's like, well, they wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't efficient because they're trying to maximize their profits and they know what their business plan is. They know how many of these vehicles they need to produce every year to satisfy a client's needs and what they can do to optimize those costs. And they're clearly doing that, or they wouldn't be trying this, is right. my first reaction. It's like, you got you to gotta think about the money. And Mike's, I love Mike's description of, you have to remember there's inbound logistics and outbound logistics. And the outbound logistics of delivering a bus is not insignificant. So imagine you had a massive factory that was producing vehicles of, for buses that were going to be delivered across the country. You have to deliver how thousands of buses to Chicago from across the country that's gonna be very expensive to do where if your factory is like 100 miles from chicago your your delivery costs drop dramatically so it's right (laughs) there's efficiencies there's savings in cost where maybe inside the factory it's not quite as optimized as like a massive ford plant but the savings you get from the inbound and outbound logistics of shipping parts back and forth and finished products back and forth makes up for that inefficiency. So you have to look at it as like a organism. What's the total (laughs) what's the total net profit this company is going to be able to make.
0: I also think another measure is waste versus Mm -hmm. uh, consumption and Mm -hmm. for a company that is saying we can repurpose older vehicles we can break those parts down and reuse those we can avoid shorter shipping that you just described means shorter fuel use in getting those things around the country the vehicles that they're producing are evs themselves so that is a benefit that is not easily um rebutted by saying like well ford could pump out vehicles a lot faster. Yeah, but Ford's vehicles are going to be gas vehicles. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be Mm -hmm. these EVs. Um, so there's all sorts of ways of measuring efficiency and I think that one thing tying this to Tesla that this demonstrates and Tesla demonstrates is as this CEO pointed out when people talk about a blank page. Yeah. They sometimes don't actually see that the page isn't blank. And there's a lot to be learned from that, that throwing out the old model, sometimes even as revolutionary as Tesla has been in so many ways, it still looks like a car company. Yep. Yep. It still looks like a car factory. And, you know, the same thing about Apple, when Apple in so many ways revolutionary in changing what the products are, but ultimately The companies, the factories that are building iPhones look like electronics factories. They look the same as they did before. So when it comes to a company like this, that's really changing the production and taking something as built into our thinking as a production line and saying, you know what, a production line might not be the most efficient way to do this. It really, you hear a record scratch and think like, how do I rethink even that? It's quite, it's quite interesting. It's a, it's a big logic puzzle and it's a big, uh, for anybody trying to produce anything, it really makes, it can give you an opportunity to take a step back and say, what assumptions am I making about how things are made that is affecting me in my own life? And I'm just, I say that now as a writer, I say that for myself to say like, what am I, what assumptions am I making about how I produce my writing that I
1: could rethink? Yeah. It's so it's, it's interesting. It's inspiring in a way yeah that's exactly what i said in the the video of this is what innovation looks like it's here's a company that's making boutique bespoke vehicles that it's rethinking how those are made and tesla on the mass scale production side of things is rethinking how a gigafactory produces things like one of the things that they're starting to do i think it's in the germany gigafactory that's where it's going to be starting i believe no wait no no it's in in fremont is they they have a gig (laughs) it's the first of its kind You know how like you get little matchbox cars? Um, They're basically, the frames of those are basically just like, you know, not stamped, but it's like a giant mold that just makes the the, each body of the car so they can mass produce Mm -hmm. those things. That's essentially what they're going to be doing with like, I believe it's the Model Y. They have the world's first like gigantic, massive stamping machine where it's going to basically make a huge portion of the frame in just one go, which means you don't have to weld pieces together because it's one gigantic uber piece (laughs) right (laughs) which which makes it stronger it makes it uh faster and cheaper to produce it does you don't have to have a welding thing to do all this kind of stuff it's rethinking what a mass scale production of a car can actually potentially be where Sadly, more more- as you're
0: describing all of that, I in my head, I see Anakin and Padme lost in the robot factory on yeah. Geonosis. <laughs> <Yes. It's-
1: laughs> That's essentially what they're doing. And it's kind of crazy to me. It's like so on, you have two sides of the spectrum here between Tesla and Arrival. It's like Tesla is looking at pumping out a million cars a year in the fastest, most efficient way that you could possibly do it. And then you have on the flip side, a company that's building bespoke vehicles as efficiently and cheaply as you can possibly do it. So it's like, it's kind of cool to see the two different approaches and how they're being utilized.
0: And that bell means it's time (laughs) to move on to the second half of our show (laughs) where we talk about things that we've been watching to keep ourselves calm and breathing deeply as we slowly exit 2020. Matt, I'm going to shock you. Uh-oh. by throwing it to you first. Normally I lead off. Okay, but today I'm <laughs> I'm going to throw it to Matt and let him start off our discussion. So Matt, what have you been watching?
1: There's in this pandemic era we're living in, this really strange time period where I love seeing movies in theaters. I like the big screen experience and as much as people sitting next to you can bother you, there's something about a collective viewing experience like when you see a play or a musical or a movie that collective organic audience experience. There's something visceral that you don't get in home watching those, but there's two movies that were just released onto streaming services because (laughs) there's no movie theaters to show them in. Wonder Woman 1984 and Pixar's next movie soul. I've watched both of those over Christmas Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm torn. I loved the first Wonder Woman I, I asked that movie just like blew me away. Um, one, the no man's land sequence where she's in the world war one trench warfare scene mm. is one of the most moving, compelling action sequences I've seen in any kind of superhero movie. It's so good. Wonder woman, 1984. I'm really torn on. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Um, I wonder if I would have liked it more if I had seen it in a the theater, uh, which is an interesting cause it's, the big tentpole action sequences probably would have been a little more breathtaking in a gigantic screen, but the storyline to me, it felt a little victim to like, you remember like how superhero movies, whenever they have sequels, they have this compel compulsion. I don't know what it is that they just want to cram as much crap in as possible. Like you had the original Batman movie with Michael Keaton. And then you had, what was it, Batman forever. And suddenly Mm -hmm. they had the penguin and then they had, uh, you know Michelle Pfeiffer in there as Catwoman. It's like, why, why are we cramming all these villains in at once? Because then you can't spend time to get to know them and make a little more of a compelling back and forth between the hero and the villain because you're trying to cram too much stuff in. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 does that a little bit. It's got two villains crammed in there that they're trying to work in and you feel like you're getting short changed on both of them. Uh, the performances are great. There's a underlying, you know, meaning to the movie of loss, regret, desire that it's dealing with across all the characters and those thread lines of each character do get tied up at the end as a cohesive whole, but it felt like if they had just taken one of those plot lines out, it would have been a stronger movie. Um but all in all, it was fun. It was a good just kind of light lighthearted romp. And my one complaint, <laughs> this is, this sound really weird. I don't know how to say this in a way that will make sense, but you know, like in Stranger Things, like you and I are kids of the eighties. Uh, we grew up in the eighties. This mm-hmm. is kind of like my decade and Stranger Things did a wonderful job of evoking eighties feeling in that show without And making its own. So it's like a modern take of that Mm -hmm. 80s feel. And they did it throughout. The way it's filmed. The way the story is told. The title sequences evoke 1980s Stephen King movie. It's like everything about it. It just evokes. It's just dripping in the 80s in a really smart way. This movie, the title sequence in the beginning alone made me go, "Uh uh-oh. Because everything was, everything with the titles is scan lined for mm-hmm. the titles and it's done in a really cheesy graphical way that you would have never, it's not a 1980s feeling title sequence. It's like somebody in 2020 that didn't live through the eighties trying to do a graphic treatment that's, Oh, that's so eighties. Cause it's got scan lines. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. no, that's not how this works. <laughs> so it's like from a, from a graphic designer point of view, I was just like, that was, I thought it was a really bad Choice, So some of it feels cheesy in the way they presented it. But what I found fascinating about the whole filmmaking style, taking the title sequence aside, it feels like the original Richard Donner Superman movie. It's, it's got this lightheartedness to it. It's got a lot more humor than the first one. Some of it's just cheesy humor uh some of the action sequences just like are dripping original superman and i was just found that fascinating how petty jenkins it seems like the first movie felt like a period piece because it was world war one mm-hmm. and it felt like she was probably modeling that movie after movies of that era of that style and this mm-hmm. one she's modeling it after 80s superhero movies which is the original superman so it's like it was right. on that regard i thought she nailed it um so it's fun. It's just a fun movie. Definitely worth a watch. It's only on, it's only on HBO Max, I think. Is it permanently? Yep. Or is it only for a month? No,
0: it's only for a month.
1: Yeah. So definitely check it out if you have HBO Max. Don't, don't skip it. I would say definitely watch it. Um, Can I these, jump in?
0: Are you done with yeah, your, your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you watch it? Because I, I think in a Siskel and Ebert sort of way, talk about the 80s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like to put in my two cents at this point on, on Wonder Woman 1984, which was, I thought it was awful. Um, okay. Yeah. I couldn't get, I couldn't get through it. We finished, uh, watching it after an hour. Um, we both thought it was boring. Yeah. And I can see that there was uh, everything you said about, um, the eighties. It felt like a Saturday night live. Hey, remember the eighties, skit hosted by goat boy uh i'm dating myself now with these Night live references but um it felt very much like oh if we put everybody in parachute pants and point out that they're wearing parachute pants then it'll be the 80s yeah i had trouble with how you did mention that it was it had a more lighthearted feel i was okay with a lot of lighthearted feel but there were things being taken in stride that didn't make sense Mm -hmm. um For me, one of the biggest issues was that I I don't feel like I'm giving a major point away, but if you don't want to hear spoilers, uh, skip forward by about a minute or so. Um, The return of Steve Rogers is effectively in the body of another person. There was was nothing up to the point where we stopped watching it. There was no point where there was any concern about putting this other human in danger. They were... Yep, they were using somebody else's body in that way, yep. yep. And I thought that that was a real weird misstep. They had sex. Yeah, she had it was she had sex with the stranger. Would be rape. Yeah, it would be <laughs> <Yeah>. rape. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is the stuff that was most interesting to me was the evolution of Minerva. Uh, her character, I thought, was having the most of a st- of a character arc because she Mm -hmm. had a different starting point than she did ending point and max lord as a character had a has a bigger role in the dc universe than i think that this movie was hinting at and i as i was watching it i kept thinking it'll be interesting to see if they're trying to set him up as a character so he can play that kind of role in future movies but at a certain point um I just didn't have enough to hold on to as far as caring about anything. And I I actually felt like Gal Gadot was boring. Like she didn't (laughs) seem to be doing much on the screen for me that was demonstrating any real connection to what was going on around her. It felt very much like hit your mark, now jump, now punch, now swing. And after an hour of really trying to figure out like, how do I hold on to this as a, as an interesting thing to watch we both were in a position of my girlfriend and I were both like this is not doing anything for us and so my response to
1: your your thumbs up and saying like go I check it out is to say my I'm not saying don't miss that's not what I said if you have hbo max it's free for a month definitely check it out I would not pay money to see this movie. I'm not saying but that, that. But I give it a thumbs, that. I give it a thumb sideways. <laughs> right. <laughs> my thumb but my,
0: my response to that was perhaps this is something that is a demonstration of what you brought up at the very beginning of your comments, which was there may in fact be something about a giant screen that would support this lack of story. That maybe, maybe the spectacle of it being huge on a wall is what would save it as an experience
1: because watching it on a TV was just for me, it was just not nearly enough. That's kind of what I was, I was trying not to be spoilery, but it's like if they had just focused on Minerva, it would have had way more heart. If they'd focused just on Max Lord, it would have had way more heart, but because they were trying to divide it up across three characters, the heart of the movie didn't really come in until final act. Like it was in the final third of the movie that you really started to get a sense as to why Max Lord was doing what he was doing and how it was actually tearing him apart. And you started to undersee where Minerva was making this flip into being a villain and where her hatred was really coming from and what was really going Mm -hmm. on with her. It was like the heart that made you go, okay, I see what they're doing here didn't happen until the last third of the movie where right. if you want to get an audience interested you have to bring that heart like way into the first act so that you can understand some of the motivations and you can connect with those characters but i didn't connect with max lord until near the end of the movie and i didn't yeah. connect with it's this that's, that's a, and wonder woman she started to have those moments of i started to care about her again but it was until the end it was like it was so everything was too thin and, and it's, I, so it's, I
0: actually lay yeah. that at the feet of, of you, you point out, uh, you, th- you thought the director did a good job. I actually think she did not do a good job. She was involved not only in directing, but also in crafting the story and the screenplay uh, and Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns was, uh, the other person who was in, who was majorly involved yeah. in all of that. And I think that it lays at both of their feet, uh, in this sense, there is so much fat at the beginning of the story. You mentioned that the those those story points for caring about their their uh, the villains evolution and Wonder Woman's evolution doesn't come until the third act. The first act is there is a ten minute opening sequence showing yep. Diana as a young girl that yep. is absolutely pointless. There is there are scenes showing her walking around Washington D.C. with Steve, which are are pointless we don't need to see somebody say holy cow 1984 is crazy um and some of the stuff they had him marveling at they the, a scene of him going to see the uh, space museum and seeing astronaut suits that doesn't help me understand him as a character or her as a character or anybody as a character it is supposed to be a humorous moment that but that doesn't have a punchline there's no there's no funny there and one of the things that stood out to me is one of the dumbest moments was she took him to the subway and he stood in awe as a subway train came through this is a man who was alive when trains existed there's nothing about a train that would be awe-inspiring for him and it just felt like they had lost the thread in knowing how to even start the story there's a good 30 minutes in the first hour that is unnecessary and feels wasteful and it's just so I I think that this is a case for me of they did not do a good job of transitioning from a world war one setting where I agree with you that was was a very compelling historical setting and handled really well and it felt like this movie just didn't know how to get started it almost felt like people walking around waiting to improv a
1: movie and (laughs) and it just wasn't working yeah yeah I I wouldn't be as I'm not as harsh on that as you are obviously but it's it's I think we're on different we're on the same page as to like where the weaknesses were but how bad you thought those weaknesses were is definitely worse than what I thought because my takeaway was it was fine it was like popcorn entertainment which is why I think seeing it on a big screen would actually be the better way to see this but when it was all done my wife said that she liked it and she used a description that I thought was so perfect that was the most gentle action film she's ever seen. It was very gentle. There was yeah. th- the villains, the no the villains were not like twisting their mustaches villains. Like there really was no bad guy. Everybody is just making bad choices and they're making choices because of how they got to their place in life and what they're trying their desires and their dreams of what they want to be. So it's like there was a there was a plot line that was very interesting where it was all shades of gray. It wasn't good versus evil. It was just people making bad choices and them finding their way through that. And that to me was interesting, not executed well, but it was interesting. There was, there's something there that could have been a phenomenal movie. They just didn't execute it on as well as they could have. The second thing I wanted to bring up is I saw Pixar soul, which was also supposed to come to theaters and obviously it comes to Disney plus. And if you have Disney plus, I would strongly recommend watching it. But this one, much like Wonder Woman, I I finished watching it last night. I was moved quite a few times, just like a typical Pixar movie where they know how to pull my heartstrings. This movie does it. I got very chucked up at times. It's very emotional. It's a very, just a wonderful story. It did not feel like a family film to me. Like, I don't know if they had released this in theaters, I don't know how it would have done. I think it may have gone over like a lead balloon. I'm really curious to see if they look at this movie as a success because whoa boy. um, It came across to me as a movie made by filmmakers in a midlife crisis and they're exploring, uh, (laughs) they're exploring that aspect of psychology and death and living a life, not that you haven't lived and, how you can turn that around and what it means to be alive. And it's this very philosophical film that is Mm. very heavy at the core. And I'm watching, I'm 15 minutes into the movie and I'm like, I think a kid watching this would be bored out of their mind. Like the first 15 Mm. minutes I was engaged, but I can't imagine a kid being engaged. And it wasn't until maybe half of the way, half an hour in that things started to happen in the film that I think would be interesting to children where it might start to catch capture their attention. Like where I don't know if you've seen the trailers for it, but the souls universe where the souls that occupy human bodies are, they're cute little versions of us. And Mm -hmm. when you get to that realm of the story, it like is cute and it's funny and there's a lot of humor. And that's where it starts to feel like, okay, this is a family film right here. But the overarching storyline, it's just like, I don't know how many kids are going to be engaged by this. As an adult, I was riveted. But as a kid, I don't have kids. And I'm like, I was one of our, our mutual friends, Frank, I was telling him last night, I don't think his son would want to see this movie at all. It's like, it's, mm. I can't imagine him being engaged watching it. And it's a very unusual thing for Pixar to do. It's a very brave choice for them to do. But at the same time, I'm not sure who the intended audience is because it feels like it's people like me but not a family. And for right. a Pixar film, that's really weird. <laughs> so I'm not sure right. what they're intending to do. But if you have Disney Plus, it's definitely worth checking out. It's it's it feels like an art house movie to me. It's like it's inc- it's incredible. There's some really interesting like Things that they explore in that movie that I was very compelled and very moved, but I don't know if it'd be for for your whole family.
0: Yeah, I'm very interested in seeing that. I haven't watched it yet, but I, as you were talking, I was thinking about older Pixar films, and I'm thinking about the first 20 minutes of Wally, which is effectively the greatest Charlie Chaplin film that Charlie Chaplin never made, and (laughs) the opening of up which oh god, hearing children during the beginning of that movie hearing a child behind me who was probably seven say of the first 20 minutes suddenly gasp and say what happened to her and hearing her mother have to say she died and hear the little girl just burst into tears. Yeah. Um, I think Pixar really does know how to walk a very fine line and i'm interested to see that film for myself and and i hear everything you're saying it's entirely possible that they made a film in the midst of i mean it's interesting almost as a studio have they reached midlife crisis stage (laughs) for a studio (laughs) and really trying to figure out like oh we do we continue to make children films or is there a place for adult animation that hasn't existed in this way and you and you comparing it to an art house film is very interesting because i i would be very
1: interested in art house animation i didn't think about this but pixar's been around for what 20 plus years and so yeah Yeah. the, the kids that grew up with those original movies are now adults yes and this story feels like it could be for them right And I hadn't thought about it that way, but it, it, to me, I struggle to think of kids today being interested in this story, but it's, I think you will like it. I, I, yeah, it's, it's (laughs) as a creative, somebody who's worked in creative fields my entire career, you yourself have done the same thing. You're a writer. I think there's going to be a resonance with the storyline. It's going to really hit you. It's, it's a, it's a good movie.
0: Uh, I just wanted really quickly to bring up another holiday film if people are still in the mood to watch something that has to do with Christmas. We went on to a retrospective viewing of a bunch of different Christmas films and one I wanted to point out, which was something I saw. I saw this movie originally when it came out in 95. I think I probably saw it on VHS in the late 90s for the first time but uh, for some of our younger listeners, VHS was a videotape (laughs) transmission system. Uh, It's the movie While You Were Sleeping, and it's just a, it's a rom-com that is a rom-com's rom-com. It is, it hits all the same points that rom-coms should, but it has such a beautifully dark through line of Sandra Bullock's character accidentally being assumed to be the fiancee of a comatose Peter Gallagher. And then her just running with that and effectively stepping into a family that accepts her as one of their own through this assumption that they've all made. And the storyline being her looking at Peter Gallagher's brother, who's played by Bill Pullman, as a growing love interest. So it's full of classic rom-com moments. It is a story that centers around the holidays. So Christmas is built into it. And it just, it's one of those films that, especially during this era right now of, um, not being able to be with family. The point of this is that she as a character has missed Family. She doesn't have family. Her parents are both passed away. She was an only child. And so it has a real strong resonance with what a lot of us are going through right now. And I think that it's, it's uplifting in that way that it's, it's about getting through hard times and finding better times. Hmm. So I recommend that. And with that, we reached the end of 2020. So I hope our listeners have had as safe and healthy and happy at 2020 as possible and the next time you hear us we will be in 2021 i hope everybody has a safe holiday uh the new year's eve celebrations will be very different i'm expecting to watch a televised viewing of the ball literally falling off of the building and (laughs) crashing onto the times square (laughs) tarmac which will be completely devoid of people (laughs) It's going to be a very different celebration this year, but I hope everybody can manage to have a little champagne or apple juice at home safely. Just get us into 2021. Be safe. And uh, as far as reaching out to us, letting us know what's going on in your lives, let us know if you're making any New Year's resolutions. You can find our contact information in the podcast description. Please do subscribe. You know where to do it. Go hunt out your favorite app that allows you to podcast and add us to your podcasting. Please be sure to give us a rating, a review, and share us with your friends. It really does help the podcast. The podcast helps the channel. The channel helps Matthew. And then Matthew helps keep me sane. We'll talk to you next year. Bye-bye.